I wonder how many of you remember the story or know of Hetty Green. And I know I shared and used her as an illustration before in one of my other sermons. I don't know how many of you remember Hetty Green. Hetty Green, she died in 1916. And when she died, she left an, es- uh, an estate of what she was valued at back then in 1916 of around $100 million. I mean, $100 million is a lot right now. But in 1916, can you imagine how much that's worth? I don't know what that would even compare to right now. A lot. But she, had, she left behind whatever she was valued at, at $100 million. And that's a lot of money, like I said. But, but she was also called America's greatest miser. She was so miserly that it is said that she ate cold oatmeal because it was too expensive for her to heat the water for it. Thank you. Her son, this is how miserly she was. Her son had a severe leg injury and it was so severe, but she delayed in treating it because she was trying to find a free clinic that it ended up being amputated. Now, that's quite a legacy to die with $100 million around you, but your son loses a leg because you're looking for a free, free clinic to treat him with. I'm not sure how you categorize that behavior. Maybe Dr. Gibson, congratulations. I want to congratulate Elise, and she's officially Dr. Gibson now. So, hey, we're, we're excited and proud and praying God's blessing on your life. But I don't know how you'd categorize that kind of behavior. A person to die with a million dollars around you, but you still die. You don't want to heat the water just to have, and so you decide to have cold oatmeal. I'm just going to leave this here for now. I don't know. It's pretty shocking, pretty surprising, but the book of Ephesians is written to Christians just like this lady. Now, I know some of you are not yeah, well, what, what do you mean by that? What kind of Christian lives like that? It's the kind of Christian who doesn't understand the riches he has in Christ. Amen. The kind of Christian who wanders through life spiritually malnourished because he does not know where the feast really is when it is right there in front of him. Amen. Ephesians is written, I think, to Christians so that we do not end up like this lady. Christians who have no idea how rich they are or have no idea how to manage the riches that they have at their disposal. And so as we kick off the study in Ephesians, I've titled my series, this whole series, Rich Christianity. Because the main idea in this book that Paul writes is about becoming rich in the things that money can't buy. Because everybody wants to become rich. And I hope when we put it online, people will click on it because they want to get rich. I don't care. But some people have compared this book to a bank account. The only difference is this. It is a spiritual bank account that you can write out or cash out checks. And the account never diminishes. Amen. Some have called this book the treasure house of the Bible. And I love Ephesians. I've read it several times. And I, I think if you really dig into this book, it's, it will absolutely transform your life. Because it has incredible riches for each and every one of us who say we believe in Jesus Christ. It will teach you who you are, how rich you are, and how you're supposed to re- use those riches for the glory of God. This morning, I just want to introduce the, the background of this book and give us a general overview, our outline and structure of this book. And let me encourage you this morning uh, to please, please read through this book at least once a week. It's not that long. As we go through this series, I promise you, it is so rich. It really is rich. It's six chapters, 
You read one chapter a day, I'll give you Sunday off. But read one chapter a day, it'll take you less than five minutes. I got it down to less than four minutes now. Because after some time, you kind of know what's going to happen. and You kind of memorize what it's going to say. I challenge you, I mean, if you have the app on your, on your phone, use There are several good translations out there. Read it in a different translation every day. Or as we go through this book, but I encourage you, please, 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 read through this book <coughs> at least once a week through this series. And if you are sincerely seeking and trying to figure out who you are and what your purpose in life is, especially as a believer, study this book. Read this book because it lays bare who you really are and what your purpose is. And again, the world we live in, and I, I again encourage you or warn you not to be like a lot of people we find today who complain and whine about everything but are not ready. I mean, they're ready to blame everybody else for the troubles they have, but they're not willing to do anything for themselves. Now, as a Christian, I know a lot of Christians who whine and complain about everything around them, but are not willing to pick up the Word of God and read it when this is the life and has the answers they're looking for. Yeah. And so if you really want to get on with your life and try and figure out life, pick up this book, if you want to call it that, and read it. And again, Ephesians is a great book to start at. Journey with me, if I can call you that. Again, it will take you less than five minutes to read that one chapter, along with everything else that you read. But please understand my heart here. I don't want any of us to live our lives without knowing the richness that we have in Christ. The riches we have at our disposal that are given to us in Christ, but through His grace. Through His grace. Through His grace alone. The theme of this book is kind of based on the same thing. And this idea of riches carries out. The riches of His Son carries out throughout this book. And so if you have your Bibles with you, turn to the book of Ephesians. And we're going to go through several verses here. And hopefully Nate can keep up. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7. It talks about the riches of His grace. It was the end of that verse in chapter 1. The riches of His grace. Same chapter, if you drop down all the way to 18. It uses again the same thing. The riches of His glorious inheritance. Chapter 2, verse 7. The riches of His grace. Chapter 3, verse 8. Talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 16, it says, the riches of His glory. And so you see here, this theme kind of goes throughout it. You have the riches of His grace, the riches of His glory, the riches of His Son. You see this theme kind of going through the whole book. And let me say this, the more I read this book, the more frustrated I got with some of these prosperity preachers. Because I have heard so many sermons using this theme of riches to imply financial riches of physical health. And I sit there and as I read this book, I scratch, not scratch, I pull out the hair on my head because some of the things they say. Because the riches that Paul talks about in Ephesians has nothing to do with physical or material riches at all. What he's talking about is spiritual riches. And I encourage you, if you hear someone using Ephesians to say something like that, to switch channels. Please switch channels because they're missing it. Change the station. I don't know. Again, please hear me out. Ephesians has nothing to do with physical or material wealth or prosperity. But what Ephesians is about is God unloading, lavishing on us all his riches because of his grace and grace alone. That's it. The word grace is used 12 times in this book. The word grace that we know means what? God's unmerited, undeserved kindness or favor. Grace is behind all this riches, all this richness that Paul is talking about that God pours out into our lives. And the key to the riches is the important phrase that Paul writes about throughout. The key phrase is this, in Christ. In Christ. It is because we are in Christ that all the fullness of the riches of the inheritance of His grace 
are ours. It's not for everybody. It's for us who are in Christ. In Christ. And you see the heart of Paul here actually. And his passion as he writes this book. And you know in his prayer for them he summarizes in chapter 3. Right at the end of chapter 3 verse 19. Chapter 3 verse 19. The last part there. And I, I want to read this from the New American Standard. All this riches and everything else that he's talking about. And he summarizes it like this way. That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And I'm sitting there reading this time and time again. And I just go, wow. Chew on that for a moment, church. How many of you want to be filled to the fullness of God? Is that a desire? And this idea of fullness again permeates the whole book again. And he talks about, and it's kind of interesting. In 3 verse 19, he talks about the fullness of God. In 4 verse 13, he talks about the fullness of Christ. And in 5.18, he says what? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what you have here is the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ, and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Church, I don't think it gets any clearer that God wants us to be full. With the fullness of God itself. Amen. How rich is that? Amen. God wants us to know that we are rich. And to live our lives in the fullness or abundance which he has promised to us. Because we are in Christ. Amen. Because we are in Christ. Yes. Let's remember this, please. The fullness, the richness, the abundance. It's nothing that we earn on our own. It's given to us because of His grace and because we are in Christ. That's it. That's it. And that's what this letter of Ephesians has to offer. Like I said earlier, if you're serious about living your life in the fullness that Paul is talking about right here, The fullness is given to us because we are in Christ. If we are serious about that, we need to take this book and read it and meditate and study it more. I have been, in my own personal life, been so encouraged with this book. Because what it tells us is who we are, what is available to us. One commentator, he summarized it this, this way. There are enough resources in heaven to cover all past debts, present liabilities, and future needs, and still not diminish your account. And that's God's plan. That's God's plan for each and every one of us who are in Christ. Key phrase, you are in Christ. You will hear me say this again and again and again, because Paul gives this to us again and again and again because all these riches are for us because we are in Christ. And these riches are beyond our wildest imagination because it's all based on Him. Nothing we do or we will ever do to earn that. It's just His grace that He pours out. In, In Ephesians, He uses the word lavishes on us because we are in Christ. And as we spend these next few weeks studying and meditating on this, this letter, I encourage you again, please read through this book. But let's go towards the introduction, the in first few verses of chapter, chapter uh, 1. And again, I will put all the outline out uh, on our Facebook page or somewhere where you can access all the scriptures. I'll make sure that it's there for you all to access if you all want to. Philippians, Ephesians 1, verses 1 and verse 2. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. To God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of interesting when you read this introduction. This is just a side note. Everything he says here, he kind of hits you with a double barrel gun. You know, not just one thing. Paul, an apostle. He says, Paul, an apostle by the will of God to the holy people in Ephesus, the faithful 
grace and peace, Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of interesting. He is going all out right in the beginning. That's what this chapter is all about. And you understand just these first two verses. You see the centrality of Christ to Paul, his life and his ministry. Because three times, right in this first two verses, three times he uses, says Christ, mentions Christ Jesus. And if you read, I mean, three times right there, an apostle of Christ Jesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And then he says, uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read the first chapter, almost every verse there has Christ mentioned in it. So there is no doubt that Paul, Jesus was in the middle of everything he did. He said his life and his ministry. He was in Christ and Christ was everything for him. That's why you understand his passion when he says, for me to live is what? Christ. He was in the middle of everything he did. It's all because of Christ. And we are in Christ. Do we have that same kind of passion where Christ is the center of it all? We are rich in Christ. We are rich in Christ. Again, this is our greatest, greatest resource we will ever have. Ephesians lays it out clearer. Let's look at the author. Of course, Paul, identified as the author in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, and of Jesus Christ, sorry, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Again, it would have been enough for Paul to just say, hey, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, because he says that in his other introductions. But here again, it's like that double, double whammy that he always gives. Not just one thing, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, but also by the will of God. Paul, an apostle, by the will of God. What do we know about Paul? Of course, we know Paul came from the tribe of Benjamin. Came from the tribe of Benjamin, and uh, I'm just assuming his parents wanted him to have probably the most most famous Benjamite. As a name, so who did they choose? Saul, the first king. Probably the most famous Benjamite to have lived around there. And so he grew up as Saul, you know, with the same name as the great king Saul. And grows up to become one of the greatest rabbis ever. Trained under who? Gamaliel, in the school of Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers back there. And he grows to become a leader, a spiritual leader in, in Israel. He knew all the spiritual leadership. He moved around in those circles for sure. Knew the philosophies, everything else. He knew the scriptures of the Old Testament like no one else probably back then. And he was a well-known rabbi, a leader, a teacher, and a member of the Sanhedrin. That's who Paul was. Of course, he becomes probably the most devout Jew you could find back then. But what he also became is someone totally committed to persecuting Christians because he wanted to snuff out this new heresy that had started. He hated Christians so much that he went after them from town to town to town. And of course, you know, on one of his trips, he's deciding to go to Damascus to get these Christians again, to bring them to justice for all the blasphemy. And on his way to Damascus, what happens? The Lord Jesus himself kind of stops him in his tracks. He falls off his he has this revelation of who Christ is and then all of a sudden his life is totally transformed. Totally transformed and he becomes one of the greatest preachers to have ever lived. He spends a few years in the desert of Arabia, pastors a church in Antioch. And as he's pastoring this church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, it says the Holy Spirit comes in and there's a word that says, Hey, separate from me who? Paul, Saul. And Barnabas. To do what I've called him to do. And then you think about what it is. It's that revelation that he got as he was on that road to Damascus. When Christ met him. Where God had called him to be what? A preacher. To take the gospel to the Gentiles. And all of a sudden in Acts chapter 13. There's this release where the Holy Spirit says. Hey set them apart to go do what I called them to do. That's what it is. Hey you're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so then he starts his greatest missionary trips ever in in all history. 
founded churches all across the Gentile world. And because of his efforts, non-Jews or Gentiles are part of the family of God. When did he write this book? Most scholars agree that this book is written in the early 60s AD, 61, 62 AD. And Acts chapter 28 verse 30 gives us more of the setting where Paul has already finished most of his missionary journeys. But he's been taken a prisoner. But he's under not a traditional prisoner. He's under a house arrest. But is chained to a soldier for, I mean, 24-7 basically, right? Chained to the soldier. And this happens for almost two years. But while he's under house arrest, he still has some freedom, not to go outside, but he has the freedom to meet with people who come to visit with him. And so he keeps preaching to them, teaching them, and also writes to the churches that he has established. And these these letters are what we call the prison episodes. There are four of them that we call the prison episodes that he wrote over the two-year period. They're called Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, the small uh, one chapter, basically. And so that's the background from where he's writing in prison under house arrest. Now, who were the recipients of this letter? Chapter, I mean, verses 1 and 2 kind of tell us who he's writing to. Verse 1 tells us, to the saints in Ephesus. I know the NIV translates it as to God's holy people. I like that a little better. Because the word saints can be easily misunderstood. And we'll get to that, but... He says it's to the saints in Ephesus, and we need to know this, that Ephesus, the word Ephesus does not appear in all the manuscripts, the early manuscripts right there. And there's a, there's a perfect explanation for that. Most scholars agree that this was a circular letter, because we found manuscripts where it says to, and it leaves a blank there. And as this, church, uh, this letter went to different churches, they would kind of fill in their name right there. And so you can safely assume, and there's no, no one discredits this, that this letter was written probably to all the churches in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey right now. And this was probably the first letter was there. If you read, uh, it talks about a letter to the Laodiceans. And he says, hey, you all watch for this letter that's coming, that's been circulating. And so this is what most scholars will agree. This is a circular letter. But in this case, it's addressed to the Ephesians where they fill in, fill in their name. Kind of like every church just sticks their name in when they get that letter there. And so that's what it's about. Why do you say it's kind of a circular letter? It's kind of because it's kind of different from all his other letters. There's no mention of any particular person in this letter because it's a generalized letter. There's likelihood, like I said, there's no personal names mentioned in this. But what he does say is, he says, the saints in Ephesus are the God's holy people in Ephesus. And we need to be careful when we read the word saints because it's not the, the stained glass uh, or the stained glass, you know, images and not the posters or pictures of these uh, images we see right outside some of these churches with all these good old apostles or St. Peter or St. whatever right now. That's not the point. Not St. Francis and what was St. Joseph or whatever. It's not that at all. The saints he's talking about are just ordinary people like you and me, ordinary people, sinful people saved by the grace of God. And now called saints. It's just about ordinary people who have been set apart. That's why the NIV translates it as God's holy people. Who've been set apart for God's purpose. That's the idea. That's the people he's writing to. And so as much as it, it refers to Ephesians and the churches back then. It's referring to each and every one of us. Applies to each and every one of us. Who have been called by God and set apart. For his purpose. Amen. That's why Ephesians is not really a book to unbelievers. It's to, it's to believers. To the saints in Ephesus. That whole area back then in, in uh, modern Turkey basically. A little about Ephesus on the whole. And we get a little picture in Acts chapter 18. Paul's in Corinth. And then he leaves Corinth. And as he goes... Bear with me, I I love the history of this, it sets it all up. As he leaves Corinth, he takes two people who become his best friends, you know, Priscilla and uh, Aquila and Priscilla. And as he's going, he's actually trying to go back to Antioch, that's his home base if you want to call it that. And he's going from Corinth and as he goes back, he goes through Ephesus and when he gets to Ephesus, he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. 
That's what you find in Acts 18. But in Acts 19, you see that Paul goes back to Ephesus and spends almost three years there pastoring the church and laying the foundation, building this church up with Priscilla and Aquila. And actually, this church had three famous pastors. They had Paul, of course, and then later on they have Timothy who goes out there. And we know that actually John, towards the end of his life, the end of the first century, John the Apostle goes there too. And so it would seem like, you know, hey, this is a great church to be in. You know, you have all these great men of God out there. And that's true. The church was great, but the city was pretty terrible. Ephesus was far from ideal. It was cosmopolitan in its nature. It was a happening city. They termed Ephesus as the main market of the whole Asia Minor region back then. So there was a lot of traders and there was a lot of money there. Ephesus was a place where they had something like the modern Olympics. They had those games out there too. And so there were a lot of people always in that town. But it was most famous for one thing. The Grand Temple of Diana. If you know anything about that, that's one of the ancient wonders of the world. It was spectacular to look at. And that's what they were known for. But what was Diana all about? The chief fertility god. Like I said, even though it was one of the wonders of the world, and um, people describe the statue of Diana as pretty horrendous, actually, but they don't know where it came from. They just, the myth was that it just fell from heaven, so whatever. But it was always impressive to look at this grand temple of Diana, but this was the chief fertility goddess, and of course, with it came all the depraved thinking of whatever fertility rituals were there. Added to that. Ephesus and the temple around Diana, the temple area, was a sanctuary place, a place of sanctuary. It simply meant this. If you were a criminal and you were running away from being prosecuted or punished or anything else, you could run. And as soon as you got into the temple area, you were safe. And so if you read history and scholars, they say the place was also full of people who were criminals, swindlers, and everybody else running from the law. That's where they hung out. And now in the midst of all this, you see Paul writing verse 3. Chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Amen. I think that would be what we would call a theme in the context Of all that's happening out there. The theme is riches and wealth and prosperity. But here it is. It says what? We are blessed in heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Doesn't matter what's happening around us. How depraved the world we live in. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And throughout the letter, that's the one theme that he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. The richness of our spiritual blessing. The richness of our spiritual blessing. Again, please remember, nothing to do with material wealth. And if you read the book of Ephesians with the mindset that you're going to get a little extra money in your bank account, you're missing the point. You're blessed. Blessed. In the heavenly realms with every, not some, not a few, every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing in Christ. So you see a little about the author. You see a little about the date and kind of the big theme that's running through about riches and blessings of God. And we also got to notice that Ephesians is a little different from the other letters because there is no specific purpose In terms of occasion, he's writing to. Because most of the time that he writes a letter, Paul is addressing some some kind of situation. When we study Galatians, the problem was with these Judaizers, these Jews who became Christians, and now they were forcing the Jewish law upon the rest of the church, right? So he writes to rebuke them. When you read Colossians, he's talking about there's another heresy going on at that point in time. And so he's writing writing to, to go against what that heresy is about. But Ephesians really has no specific purpose that it's addressing. And so it's easy to conclude that he is writing one thing for one reason alone. Telling us as believers who we are in Christ. That's the main purpose right there. Who we are in Christ. He's, uh, he's informing the believers about their position 
in Christ in the midst of all the depravity around them. You are rich. You are blessed in every way possible in spiritual realms. That's what he's telling them. And the book is pretty well laid out. The first, it's divided. Most scholars, there's no argument about this and how it's divided into two, two parts. Chapter 1, 2, and 3 is one section. Chapter 4, 5, and 6 is the other section. Chapter 1, 2, and 3 tells us about the riches, where Paul tells you what these riches are. And in chapter 4, 5, and 6, Paul tells you how you use these riches now. You kind of, hear me out here, church. You kind of have to get it all. You can't spend riches if you don't know what they are. And even if you know what they are, if you don't know how to use them, you can't spend them. So the first three chapters you can call is the theology of a rich believer. 4, 5, and 6 is the practice of what we ought to be like. And there are many other things that are involved here, but that's just kind of a big theme that runs throughout. The first three chapters talk about the truth, about who we are. The last three chapters, it says now that you know the truth, now this is the way you ought to live your life. It's practical. It's practical. The first three tell us about our position in Christ. The last three position he tells us, now live like this. It has lots of commands in the last three chapters. He says, do this, watch this, stop this, start that, be filled, put on the armor, fight the fight. So there's commands towards the end. The first three more tells us about who we are and what we have in Christ. And so let's go, with the time we have left, I just want to go really quickly. I have so much. It is so amazing how much... How rich the word of God is, people. Chapter 1. I just want to go through some main things. Chapter 1. Uh, chapter 1 is what I... It's all about what God has done for us. Chapter 1 is all about what God has done for us. It talks about God's sovereignty. That He is in total control of our lives. It talks about what God has done for us. So if you follow along or if you want to do it later, that's fine. Chapter 1 verse 4, he says, He chose us. This is what God has done for us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. Yeah. Now it's not a choice. He didn't choose us to do whatever we want to. No. He, he ch- calls us for what? And you read it here. For what? He calls us to be holy and blameless in His sight. Yes, amen. Verse 5. It, verse 4 says He chose us. Verse 5 he talks about Him adopting us as sons and daughters. Verse 7, it talks about He redeems us. Through what? Through His blood and, the forgive, and forgives our wrongdoings. Yeah. Verse 9, it says He reveals to us the mystery of His will. And of course, chapter 3 deals with this mystery a lot. Verse 11, He talks we have an inheritance. What God has in store for us. And so as you see, go through chapter 1, it focuses again on what God has done for us. Us and we get this picture of God's sovereignty over everything. God's sovereignty, where He's working all things out according to His will and to fulfill His purpose for us who are in Christ. I need to say this because I've met some people, or I've met quite a few people who confuse God's sovereignty with something of being like a mob boss, you know, who has to flex to show people who he, how great he really is. You know, it, it, he's, got to, he's ready to, to zap you if you stand up to him. No, that's, yeah, he does that once in a while to put people in his place, but that's not the idea of sovereignty that we have. Sovereignty is understood in terms of his total control where his will is being done in his time. According and fulfilling his purpose. That's what it is. It isn't about just being a boss in control. And that's where the encouragement I think lies for each and every one of us. That doesn't matter how bad it looks or how out of control our lives are right now. Or how bad the world in general is. God is still in control. God is still in control and let there be no confusion about that because he is working for you get the bigger picture it's not a picture of some like dragging a kid out of a candy store when they're kicking and screaming because they want to buy you know they want to buy, want you to buy some candy 
That's not his sovereignty. That's not the idea where he's in control or everything like that. No. He's not imposing his will like that. It's more an invitation to submit to his will. Because we have choice. And that's what he's telling us right there. We'll talk more about it when we go in detail in this chapter. But I just want to read the last part of verse 11. It says, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Now the purpose of him. Now hear this out. Who works all things in accordance with the plan of his will. He works all things in accordance to what? With the plan of his will. I mean, you just read those verses, read that verse, and it just, it just brings rest to my soul, if I can put it that way. No matter what, he's working in accordance to his will for my life. His will for my life. You know, it's, kind of, it's amazing because when things hit us or hit me all of a sudden, and, you know, we're just standing there wondering, I mean, we have no idea where that came from, and we... Say it to him, man, where did that come from? Where in the world did that come from? But God's never ever going to say that. Oh, where did that come from? No. He's sovereign. He's in control. He's never ever going to say, oh, that wasn't supposed to happen. There's no oops with God. No. I mean, it's just bizarre to think about God biting on his finger. Michael, Gabriel, what do we do? No, it's never going to happen. He's in total control. How can we not rest in that? He's in control, and that's what it tells us in chapter 1. He's sovereign. Everything is under his control. We may not understand how he's in control also in this world, because when we look around, we can doubt that. But let me tell you, there will be a time when we will understand how he's in control. But in the meantime, what do we do? We hold on to the truth that he's in control. That's our position. That's what he has promised. So we hold on to that and live like that. And verses 15 to 23 in that first chapter is probably the most amazing prayers you'll ever read. You want to learn how to really pray without the usual cliches and the Christian jargon that we pick up from church? Read this prayer that he makes. Real powerful towards the end of the chapter. So chapter 1 talks about what God has done for us. Chapter 2 talks about what God or what Christ is doing in us. What Christ has done in us. And the whole idea here is that in Christ we are reconciled to God once again. That's the push of chapter 2. The idea of reconciling us with God. And if you read the chapter the first part, he is not mincing words. He's coming, hitting you all the way through. He kind of lays it, <coughs> lays it out there. The depravity and the sinful and everything else. He kind of knocks you down with it. Where you, you basically almost, man, you just got to cover your face and hide in shame almost. That kind of, that kind of feeling. Because you feel absolutely terrible as you read chapter, chapter 2, the beginning. You kind of have no hope. And then he says, but Christ blows everything out of the water there. But Christ. Jeez. Love it. But God. How can we not? I don't know. You stand here just like I said. We would be doing our own thing lost in our own way. But God. But God. Read those first few verses of that chapter, I just want to read it. It says it better than I can say it, and we'll study it more in depth later. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, and you, and as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He's not even taking time to describe anything. He just gives it to you straight. You were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Just... In case you think you're pretty good. He says, no. 
We were by nature deserving of wrath. And verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Hallelujah. That's the theme right there. He reconciled us. We were dead, but because of his grace in Christ right now, we are reconciled to God. For it is by grace that you are saved through faith. And this is not of yourself. It's a gift from God. Just in case you start getting cocky again. No. It's not a result of work so that no one can boast. But we are. For we are his workmanship. It's working in us. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God has prepared beforehand. So that we would walk. In them. We will never be able to walk the Christian walk unless we know who we are as Christians. Amen. When you read that passage, you just need to step back, sit down, just take a moment to just chew on it. Verse 6 is amazing. He says, What? God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. What's our position, church? Seated. High in heavenly realms. Hallelujah. Quit playing and kicking around in dirt when we live in high places. That's why he has seated us. It may not feel like that, but that's what our position is. That's the richness he's talking about. Now, if we will only live our lives like that with that mindset, hey, I am seated with Christ in high places, not because of what I have done, but because of His grace and His grace alone. I have that privilege, that position. I said, stop groveling in the dirt and live like someone seated in heavenly realms with Christ who we are church and that's what Ephesians push us towards who we are in Christ yes formerly we were just like those people in that city depraved and everything else but then drop down to verse 13 it says <coughs> it says remember at the time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel foreigners to the covenant of the promise with without hope and without God in the world but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Each and every word just drips with meaning for us, church. We were far away, heathens, pagans, outcasts, but now in Christ, we are drawn near to him. Now in Christ, the wall is broken. Now in Christ, there is peace. He goes on to say in verse 14, for himself is our peace. And man, there's so much here and I'll go through it as best as I can. But with God's help. But it's so significant. I mean, we don't understand it as much because we, most of us have been Christians and lived in church. But for those first century Gentiles, they've been outcasts. And for someone to come and tell them, hey, you know what? Now that wall is broken. Now you are far away at one point of time. But now you are near. I mean, that's amazing news for them. And he builds on that. And he builds on that as we go into chapter 3. He talks about the mystery. He talks about the mystery. Chapter 3 is about a mystery. And he's hinted about this in the passage we just read. He's just building on that. He's just building on that. Verse 3, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. For, uh, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. He's already written that. That's what he's talking about. What I wrote about before briefly. And then in verse 5, he says that this mystery was not, was not known to previous generations, but is now revealed. 
verse 5, which was not, talking about the mystery, was not made known to people in other generations as it is now being revealed by the Spirit of God to God's holy apostles and prophets. The word mystery that we have here, I mean, you know, the mystery, the word, when Paul uses mystery, we can't think about it like a murder mystery. No, the idea of mystery, when Paul uses it, is the idea of a secret. Something that was a secret, but now is revealed. It's not like a murder mystery, who done it kind of situation. No, it's not that at all. It's been a secret, but now it's been revealed. That's the idea. Now the secret has been made known. And what is this mystery? Verse 6 is specific about what this mystery is all about. It says the mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and share us together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Amen. Praise God. We are standing yes testimony to that. Amen. I don't know how many of you are related to any Jewish blood in you. I don't know. But the rest of us. Amen. That's the promise. The mystery is what? That the Gentiles now are fellow heirs. There is no Jew and no Gentile. We are one under one banner and one lordship. The lordship of Jesus Christ. We are one. The mystery is revealed. And you know, we know. You, do you realize when you read this, do you realize that you know something that none of the Old Testament people and none of the Old, Old Testament prophets ever knew? I mean, they knew the Old Testament prophets, yes, they knew about Jesus, the Messiah, his coming, they knew about the coming kingdom. But none of them would have ever, ever knew or ever imagined the existence of the church. None of them ever knew the existence about the church. There's nothing about it. They knew that the kingdom was coming, but they did not know how this kingdom would happen. When Christ came the first time, he began the kingdom, and he's going to come, and it's going to come in its full glory at the end of time. And no Old Testament prophet or person ever anticipated the life of a church here. And the characteristic of that church is that Jew and Gentiles would worship God together with the same inheritance, the same promise that he gave back in Abraham. No prophet ever knew about that. But now, because we are in Christ, that was what was revealed to Paul. That mystery was revealed to Paul on that road to Damascus. And because he's so passionate about that, he goes to all the world preaching that mystery. You are no longer far away from God. You have the same inheritance. That's the most impressive part about the church. The most impressive part about the mystery is that there is no longer divisions. There's no Jew, there's no Gentile, but we together are heirs of the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. I don't know, when I, even saying that, it makes the, my hair on my hand stand because I get pumped. It just, how can you not get pumped up when you are partaking of the promise that was so Far away from you. It was not meant for you. You were what they considered the others dogs, basically. And now all of a sudden you hear this, this story. You hear this good news, this gospel. Hey, you're not, no longer cast away. Now you're part of the family of God. How can you not get excited about that? And that's why you understand Paul's passion. He doesn't care about being shipwrecked. He doesn't care about being beaten, being whatever he goes through, bitten by snakes and everything else. He's got to get this gospel, this good news, this mystery that was revealed to the whole world. That we don't have to die in the sins far away from God. But because of Christ, we can now come into the kingdom of God and be part of that family. That's the mystery he's revealing to each and every one of us. And he's not amazing, Paul, how amazing it is. He isn't, yeah, I've been given this responsibility. Read verse 8, chapter 3, verse 8. It says, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Yes. Man, as a pastor, I don't know how any of us can even dare say we're so privileged to preach the gospel. No, we're not this special. It's just as great. Amen. But I can just imagine the faces of people as Paul was telling them. I think one of the greatest rewards as a pastor is to when you're sharing the gospel and the lights go on, you see the transformation, the light, eyes go bright. That's one of the greatest rewards I'll ever get as a pastor. Can you imagine the faces of those people when they're hearing this news? You're no longer far away. Now you're part of the family of God. Amen. That's the mystery. Now revealed to us. Amen. 
Now to him, of course, he ends chapter 3 with this amazing doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. What an amazing part and that's just half the book church. Just half the book. The first two chapters just tells us about who we are, our position in Christ, who we are in Christ. In the next section, chapter 4, 5, and 6, now these are the practical in- implications. These are your instructions. These are how you, now, now, now you know who you are, now you know, now you, I'm, I'm telling you how to live your life now. That's what he says. And in chapter 4, verse 1, I'm just going to go through this real fast, I promise you, but it's, I'll get excited. Therefore, it starts with the therefore. I think the NIV, some of the newer versions, doesn't have the therefore in there. But therefore, I think I'm reading from the NASB. Uh, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Hallelujah. So, a prisoner. You just thought you were free. No. But because you're a prisoner. He's talking about being attached to that prison guard right there. You're attached to Christ, connected with him. There's no barrier anymore. You are with Christ, attached to him, connected to him. Now I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And how do you walk this walk? He explains it to us. Keep going right there. It says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Then, of course, there is one body and one Spirit. It's amazing. How do we walk the walk? And that's what this is. Chapter 4, I call the Christian walk. And he uses the metaphor, of course, of the body, which is coming up in chapter 4. It's just the most amazing metaphor ever because nowhere in the Old Testament does he ever refer to the kingdom of God or the are the believers, not the people of God as the body of, of Christ. Nowhere in the Old Testament does he ever talk about, use the metaphor of the body. Because he's used, he's used the shepherd, he's, he's used all kinds of words, even Jesus himself. And then here he comes, he uses the analogy, the metaphor of the body. It's pretty amazing because the whole idea of the body, it's, it's alive. It's not an organization that you join. No, the church is an organism with Christ, that blood pumping through our veins. We are part of that body. And so unity is the key, one body. Again, like I said, the metaphors he uses to describe this is, are pretty amazing. And every part of our body is important. He says that there, every single part of the body has a role to play. Every part of a body is important. If you've ever stubbed your toe and just not felt it in the rest of the whole body, you know what I'm talking about. You go hopping along till that one small toe is fixed. It affects everybody, and that's the point that he's talking about. You may feel like a insignificant, like a small little toe. You may think you look like one. Well, welcome to the club. We're all pretty, pretty rotten in our own way. But we are one body. That's the whole point right there. The Christian walk. Chapter 5, I've titled it, and what I look at the outline, it's about being an imitator of Christ. What does it mean to be an imitator of Christ? Follow me as I follow Christ. That's what he's talking about in chapter 5. Chapter 4 is about walking the Christian walk. And as you walk the Christian walk, how are you going to do it? You've got to be an imitator of Christ. And that's what he talks about in chapter 5 with roles for husbands and wives, submitting to one another and everything else, children and everything else put together. The body of Christ is growing, but we are imitating whom? Christ, the head. He's the head. And of course, chapter 6 talks about the armor. Being prepared for battle. Because the battle is not against flesh and blood church. It's in the spiritual realms as well. Amen. That's where we fight our battles. Hallelujah. As a summarize, I want to talk about four main truths that we, that we see here in this letter that are pretty evident. First truth is this. God chose us in Him. Uh, in Christ. God chose us. You know, as much as we respond to the gospel of Christ, please understand that he called us. It's his doing. 
We will never be good enough for God. But he chose us. Second truth that we have here is that Christ brings us to God through his blood that was shed on that cross. That's it. Nothing else. There's no other way to God except through Christ. And it was through the shedding of his blood. The third truth that is very evident in this book is that Jews and Gentiles are now given equal status in one kingdom, one family. And that's the last part there. The church is comprised. It's one body with many parts, but all of them have an equal, equally important role to play. I'm excited to go through this book, and I encourage you once again. Send it to you. Encourage you once again to, with your, I know several, we have several readings we do and everything else, but I encourage you to read this book. One chapter a day, I promise you, you'll have it down to less than three, four minutes. But as you read this book, understand the bigger theme that's there. The first three chapters is just showing you, telling us, Paul is telling us who we are in Christ. This is your inheritance. You are rich in Christ. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We're really nothing apart from Him, church. We are who we are because of Christ in us. We are one body, but we operate under headship of Christ. We function under Christ, the head of the church, not the pastor, not the denomination, not an evangelist, nothing. The head is Christ and Christ alone. Being part of the body also means that we can't function separately. If my hand is not attached to my body, there's no use. I can't do anything with that hand, right? That's the point here. But I think chapter 6 kind of when he tells us about the spiritual armor, I think the bigger theme is this. We are all adequately equipped to face everything that the world and the devil throws at us because we are in Christ when we put on the armor of God. Bow your heads with me this morning. just an amazing book church and I encourage you to I know it sounds cliche but I've been living in this book for the past year and a lot and read it in different translations read it in I don't know a chapter a day or just do whatever you can but let me challenge you to do that Paul's message throughout this letter to the Ephesians is this that you may understand God's grace that you might come to grips or possess this, this peace that he promises because you're part of his church and also the fact that you have at your disposal endless resources, riches that are in Christ. And I've been praying and I seriously, sincerely pray that you will allow your hearts and your minds to be tuned into what God is saying through this book. I don't know if you can remember day or the time or the preacher or the moment when your light, those lights just went on. When you understood what Paul is talking about here. Hey, it was a mystery. But now it's revealed to us in Christ that we're part of this greater family. That there are no barriers for us to get to God anymore. Because we are in Christ God is depositing in our life or let me put it this way 
Do you know the rich deposit God has made into your life? Please don't get it confused with anything material or physical. But do you live with that knowledge and understanding, even though it may be limited, that understanding of and the knowledge of how much, how rich you are in Christ as one seated in the heavenly realms. How are we just content just playing in the dirt, kicking around in the dirt, poor me? We can only get a hold of this and what Paul's saying here. Again, church, it will transform the way you live your life. It won't make you perfect, but let me tell you this. It will bring peace and rest 